and take a cue from the singing group Sweet Honey and the Rock. We are our grandmother's prayers. We are our grandfather's dreamings. We are the breath of the ancestors. We are the spirit of God. We are our grandmother's prayers. We are our grandfather's dreamings. We are the breath of the ancestors. We are the spirit of God. In this moment, in this moment in our time when we are wandering and wandering through the world, trying to find our way as a society, as a faith, and as a congregation. I have been wondering who else has done this work. Is there a source of potential innovation, potential stability and perspective? Because surely we didn't come into this moment without a lot of people before us. So in the spirit of the theme of vulnerability, I want to explore what it means that we are putting our lives on the line and to say yes to what we value for ourselves and the world. Because there is a chapter in our Unitarian and Universalist history that, that is of those people who have gone before and does not always get the attention that it deserves. And it is in our neighborhood, kind of globally speaking, if you will. A little over 20 years ago, Cynthia Grant Tucker brought forth the history of the Iowa sisterhood in her book, Prophetic Sisterhood. She talked about these women, about 21, 20, 30 women in ministry, whose ministries ran from uh, about 1870 to 1930 or so. And in her book, she talks about the stories of this movement and offers thoughts on ministry at the time that she was conducting her writing, you know, in about 2000 or so. And let me give you the setting of where the Iowa Sisterhood was coming into at the time in the 1870s. So in particular, uh, the United States was recovering from the Civil War, including the death of an enormous number, a high percentage of the young men of a generation. This was this Western front from Chicago on kind of out to Colorado was in many ways the frontier as people were pushing further West and developing. People were taking up opportunities to lay claim to land and build a life but life in so many places was hard and exhausting and so far away from the comforts and centers of population. Now, I will say that men in seminary weren't really moved to go out to the frontier. It was a bit of a hard sell. And so you had leaders such as Jenkins Lloyd-Jones, secretary of the Western Unitarian Conference and serving All Souls Church in Chicago, they were desperate to find willing and qualified leaders. Oh, and the women showed up. Oh, the women showed up. But they also had a barrier as well, for the women lacked access to seminary and training. 
that often family lives were getting in the way, uh, family commitments in various sorts were getting in the way of them having a systematic arc of training. They completed perhaps like a certification in teaching or some, some work in advanced degrees. But some, they created their divinity degree by correspondence with people such as Jenkin Lloyd-Jones and others that were trying to support and encourage the ministries. There was also the fact that the frontier itself was less bound to tradition. It was more casual. It was more practical, in essence. And the folks on the frontier didn't necessarily even respond well to the men from the East who were bringing their formality and traditions of theology. And finally, there was also the challenge, just plain theological, but uh, from traditions, uh, from the neighboring traditions, such as the Methodists, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, who were actively rejecting the Unitarians and the Universalists as heretics, who had gone against the Trinity, had denied it, many of them, and were accepting, wait for it, science, and accepting Darwin and evolution, and some of them, even saying we're not necessarily going to claim Christianity. This is 1880, 1890, 1870. Holy cats, man, let's not be Christian. Ooh. In this country, wow. So the solution in this moment was to find and support an entirely new population for clergy and a different approach to ministry. And so women were, in fact, the answer, many of whom had access to study and books, as well as varying degrees of open exploration of questions and faith with their families. These were the folks that just couldn't help themselves when something came up during Sunday school and they kept asking questions. And they kept asking questions such that it got them kind of kicked right out of Sunday school. They're like, I'm gonna go for the one or two of the women said, you know, having had a, a, con a contentious conversation with one of the Sunday school teachers, male Sunday school teachers in that case, uh, went away entirely dissatisfied, say, well, I'm gonna show up for the socialness, but I'm not here for the theology. Mm -mm. Basically. And thankfully also that you had these women had some, had a range of support also from uh, the men in various positions. There were a few men such as Jenkin Lloyd-Jones and Oliver Clute who encouraged them and actively cultivated those ministries. And so in total, something like 20 to 30 women became known as this informal gathering called the Iowa Sisterhood and whose ministries span from Illinois to Iowa to the Dakotas, Colorado, up into Wisconsin and Minnesota as well. And these women brought an approach to ministry that was more about family. It was more relational. And ministry for these women was an extension of the domestic life and women's roles. From Cynthia Grant Tucker, she said, the ministers, these ministers were mothers of congregations who were good, making good homes for their families by using not only their sympathies, but also their mental powers, their business acumen, and the understanding of world affairs beyond the kitchen and the nursery. They paid attention. So if the conception of ministry as religious housewifery was made, what made the male clergy worried about being lesser men, because they were worried, 
It offered the sisters a chance to aggrandize their womanhood by elevating the sphere that had been theirs historically. They claimed their power. And these women understood their call as being a mother of the congregation and of all its people. Some of them did, in fact, marry. Some had children. Uh, Those who married often had very supportive spouses who even contributed major funds to the church so the women could continue. Uh, Many also didn't marry and didn't have children. Uh, The church for them was an extension of their womanhood. And with, massive, with their massive skills in administration, education, crafting worship, social engagement, they amplified the idea of church home. And they mostly did it actually without incurring any debt. They were very financially responsible as well. They took the religious language that had been the norm as they came into these congregations and translated it the worship and rites of passage to make it more accessible, more more friendly for all ages. They reviewed the hymn lyrics ahead of time to remove language that placed men over women and to make it more theologically consonant with what they were preaching. They removed obey from women's wedding vows. (laughs) I'm just saying. They included children in ritual life. Uh, they, they created the dedication ceremony that, uh, where the minister blesses the baby with a rose and a dabbing of water. That has been passed down to us. We do that today. They preached and modeled equality in marriage between women and men. And they preached a down-to-earth, relatable message about Unitarianism and Universalism in the face of being viewed as the worst heretics by their Uh, many of their Christian neighbors. And this is all happening. Remember in the late 1970s, uh, uh, well, for some of us, it might be the 1970s, for the 1870s. Uh, mm, That's not so far, right? 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. But I will also add, I will also add, just as a note of, of telling a little bit of the fullness of the story, that the women in this sisterhood are white, cisgender, This is not a moment of racial diversity. The expansion West also is problematic because there were native peoples there as well. So this is a complex moment, if you will, also. But I want to say something about the most dynamic duo in this sisterhood. There's so many stories, and it's a great deep dive. If you want to go deep diving, I will will tell you what books to go to. Um, The ones I want to just briefly lift up are Mary Safford and Elizabeth Gordon, uh, born in 1851, 1852, respectively, in Hamilton, Illinois. They became close friends and eventually, as they came into adulthood, promised, made a commitment to each other to be a team in serving the church. They were the core of the Iowa Sisterhood, serving congregations often together in different capacities, uh, but also sometimes separately, always cultivating women in ministry. Mary was a major administrator who also helped solidify the denominational body of the Iowa Unitarian Association and the Western Conference. Safford said, uh, so not only were they administrators, they were preaching. They were out there being ministers. And Safford said that true religion must be first 
must first of all be free religion, free from irrational dogma that discouraged personal growth. That sounds kind of modern, doesn't it? This is 1880. Ooh. So as we heard, but you know, it certainly was, was, had its hardship as we heard with the story about Eliza Wilkes, that Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth in serving um, the plains encountered all of the hardships of living there as well. Um, they were kind of, in some moments, barely staying alive and hanging on while they were enduring these fierce winters that could come across. Now, later in their careers, uh, Mary and Elizabeth were, um, one of their last efforts actually ended up leading them to Florida, where a former member of the congregation in Sioux City invited them to establish what became the our Unitarian Universalist congregation in Orlando, still active today. Elizabeth returned to the Midwest a couple of years after they had started that congregation in 1910, and Mary remained and served the congregation from its founding in 1910 to her departure in 1927. Elizabeth retired from ministry in 1918, but remained a matriarch in the congregation uh, where she was serving in Sioux City, um, and in fact, at the very end of their lives, respectively, Mary and Elizabeth were buried alongside each other in their hometown of Hamilton. I want to tell you about one more, who is one more um, minister who is an example of what their vision of these Iowa sisterhood could accomplish when they had the resources and they had permission to go big. This is from Caroline Bartlett Crane, we heard her as Carrie in the story of with Eliza Wilkes. Um, Caroline came of age and served in the Midwest, including Iowa. And later she was called to Kalamazoo, Michigan in about 1896. Uh, and with what became known as People's Church. And this is from the UU Dictionary of History and Biography. That's a rabbit hole in the waiting. I highly recommend it. So for Caroline... She had a bit of a rough start in this, in this ministry in Michigan because there was some kind of long-held uh, conflict in the congregation that had never been fully resolved, and some of the long-term male members resisted her presence as a minister. But they gradually started to come out and check her out, just plain curious about who is this woman in the pulpit. And she succeeded in her preaching and her presence and her teaching. She succeeded. And she didn't just like succeed in the ministry, she really encouraged and nurtured this congregation. She designed a whole new church building for them to meet the needs of a growing congregation and to provide spaces for programs for social improvement. So she replaced the old fashioned kind of theological church that was all just about the worship and designed to be a house of God with a sociological institution that would house God's people she got the congregation to change its name to the People's Church and to become non-sectarian. It no longer calls itself Unitarian. It still had connections with the denomination, but didn't call itself Unitarian. She believed the church cannot be a place where we come together once a week and enjoy our doctrine and congratulate ourselves that we have a faith free from supervision, superstition. We must do something for others as well as for ourselves. And the more we have done for others, the more in the end we shall find we have done for ourselves. 
and the dedication of this building, this was not just simply a church and classrooms and offices. This was also a free public kindergarten, a women's gymnasium, had science classes, manual training, and a literary group for African-Americans called the Frederick Douglass Club. It was really comprehensive. This vision of ministry as an extension of relationship and home, that's the scope that it was taken to with the People's Church. This is why I wanted to bring this one to your attention, because Robert Ingersoll visited this congregation, visited the People's Church, and the Chicago newspapers quote him as saying, and if we wrote Robert Ingersoll, the great agnostic, if you will, he said, if all churches were like this, the People's Church, I would never say one word against them or religion. Woo! Woo, he was converted, if I may say. Ha ha. However, this chapter in our history did not last. There was sentiment growing in the country and in the church, in the Unitarianism and Universalism, that started to swing toward a more kind of pro-masculine position. You had Theodore Roosevelt being up there with this muscular masculinity of you know, leadership in the world, right? The church leaders were also taking up this, wanting to have a more assertive manhood as a way to revitalize the association. American Unitarian Association President Samuel, El El um, Samuel Elliott actively blocked women from ministry he did not believe that women were suited for ministry. They could be assistants, but not leaders. And in the Unitarian Church, the denomination, did not ordain women into ministry from the period 1906 to 1917. No women ordained. And... In fact, his efforts set the tone for policy and blocking women in ministry for the next 50 years. The next 50 years. Of the Iowa Sisterhood and the other women of the early 1990s, 1900s, many left ministry, retired early, found other work or joined movements such as suffrage and social work, I so appreciate, I so appreciate having the chance to read this story, return to it, and then offer it in this moment. It is, it offers a glimpse into the expansive understanding of theology that was taking form in the late 1800s, a theology that has meaning and practical application and was making a real positive difference in people's lives. It was a practice of ministry that was understood the human need for community, affirmation, and care, and bringing it directly to the people wherever they were, wherever they are. Hearing this story and offering it and recounting it reminds me to have faith in our ability to evolve and push boundaries and to grow. 
these women in ministry are bringing in speakers who were drawing on Ralph Waldo Emerson, Theodore Parker, Charles Darwin, and more, along with the teachings of Jesus and a more pluralistic understanding that was valuing many religions. They were teaching Eastern traditions in some of these churches as well. And so it leads me to ask the question, you know, they were asking the question, I will take up this question in the moment, what is needed now? And then following it. It is, of course, deeply discouraging how many women in ministry and the places they served were set aside, politely or maybe not always politely said, no, you don't get to serve anymore. When they were having an impact on so many lives. For our moment, for our moment, we can pause enough for our own reflection and consideration. What is needed? What, what would be pushing that boundary and that edge in our moment? And how, how might we get in our own way and limit our own potential as individuals, as a congregation, as a faith? Because we think we are operating from the frames in which we have already been working. What can we do next? What can we do that would be picking up a bit of this legacy? The women who came into the ministry in the late uh, 1990s and into 2000, women like Cynthia Grant Tucker and others who were writing and capturing these stories and telling them in many ways for the first time, were the folks that I got to listen to as I came into ministry. They were the folks who were pre present and making it easier for me to be here with you, for us to be together. How shall we be living into that legacy? Cynthia Grant Tucker finishes her book with this. Finally, the record of these prophetic sisters serves to remind us that even when there is so much to mourn in our past, there may be so much to celebrate also. For where women have passed their lives in the terms that they and not others have set for them, the stories of struggle will speak to us to use of inspiring human achievement and bravery. As, as a legacy then, this shared history has no conclusion, but only takes pause, defying the kind of closure the world has too long imposed on female destiny and bidding us all to create a more freer, more authentic narrative for the future. May we continue their legacy and continue to be brave, creating a future that they and we would be proud of. So may it be. Amen.